If you have your Bibles, if you could please turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20. And if, if you do not have your Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and it is page 858. This is the word of the Lord. Don't think that I come that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Dear Father, as we open up your word, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, that you would teach us and instruct us into whatever you might have for us this morning. May your spirit uh, come and overwhelm us in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. Hannah and I, my wife and I, when we, we were newly married, we were living in Louisville uh, for seminary, and uh, it was an awesome time in our life, and for those of you who know Hannah, she is basically like a Kentucky version of Joanna Gaines, okay? So she loves buying old furniture and making it rustic and, and transforming things that looked horrible, and then now she makes them look good, and they're all over our house. And at this time in Louisville, uh, with Sophia, she was getting older, and we needed a new dresser. So Hannah goes out, and she's looking on Craigslist. She's looking at yard sales, trying to find a new dresser. And and the most cost-effective thing we found was this guy who was selling a dresser for $20. Uh, It was a brand-new dresser, and it was actually still in the box, a.k.a. it needed to be put together. So it kind of seems like an Ikea project, you know, like good at the moment, like this is awesome. Then you get it home, and it turns to be an absolute nightmare. Well, that was me. So I bring this thing home. I'm super excited because I'm like 20 bucks. That's my kind of dresser. And so I go in. It's, obviously, it's super cheap. I open it up. I'm doing it by myself. I'm getting the parts out. I'm trying to look at the instructions. The instructions just aren't very good. Obviously, for $20, you kind of get what you pay for, you know? So I'm looking at it. No screws really have a size or dimension. It just says, like, these 12 screws, put them in. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? So I'm working on it. I'm, it took me a long time to put this dresser together. I finally get it together. I'm super excited. I'm like, yeah, I can't wait. My newlywed, she's going to be so excited about this. So I get it. I put it in the spot in the room where I think it's going to be perfect. Like, this is where my wife wants this. I followed the manual. I followed the guide. It should come to fruition. This dresser is going to be awesome. So I go, hon, come on in. Come on in. I got your dressers ready for Sophia. It, it looks good. So she walks over. She walks in. She's like, nice. So she walks around the left side, looks at it. Looks, looks good, babe. Looks good. And then she starts smiling. And I'm like, that means I either did a good job or I really messed something up. What I did was is I accidentally put the wrong length screws going out the side. So screws are now poking out of the side. And I was like, oh, no, I spent hours doing this. And I was like super upset that, you know, I disappointed my wife. And then I was Super frustrated considering I had a guide, I had a manual, I had instructions, and the instructions just didn't point me to what I needed to do. And and so all these little pieces, all these little parts were to fulfill the part's intention. 
The screws and the wood, the intention of that, the reason that they made that and put it in that box was for it to become a dresser, right? That was the intention behind those parts. That's why they were created, but it wasn't so. In my case, it did not work out as so. But that's the point of directions. The point of directions in a guide is to point you to fulfill those parts' purposes, to make the object whole again. The law and the prophets were given as instructions, as guides and prophecies to the people, and they were to be fulfilled through Christ. Just like pieces of the instructions going to be the end goal of a dresser, the end goal of the law and the prophets were to be fulfilled in Christ. So the major theme of this scripture is the importance of the Bible and how Jesus validates all of scripture. He validates all of scripture. On June 14, 2000, Southern Baptists, they met in Orlando. That is, uh, we are a Southern Baptist church. And the most important item on the agenda was to approve the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which our church affirms. And here's what they wrote regarding Scripture and our doctrine of Scripture, taken both from the Bible and from historic Baptist confessions which was overwhelmingly adopted, here's what it says. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Point number one, all scripture points to Jesus. We saw that in uh, the Baptist faith in message 2000. and We will see that it is fulfilled through Christ. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think that I came to abolish them, but instead I came to fulfill them. Matthew 5, 17, what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a high view of scripture. He's not saying, hey, listen, I came, I'm totally changing the game. Everything you once knew, discard it. Discard it. Completely get rid of it. Abandon it. It is of no use. It is of no value. That's not what he's saying. Instead, Jesus is affirming. He is affirming everything in the Old Testament. John 5 says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they, it is they, the Old Testament that bears witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Jesus says, because Moses wrote of me. If you believe Moses, if you believe your Old Testament, you will believe me because he wrote of me. Jesus introduced, as you know if you've read any of the Gospels, that Jesus talked in such a different way. He taught in such a different way that it was so striking. In John 7, they says, no man ever spoke like this before. It was absurd. Nobody had talked like this in the way in Jesus talked. There's a reason because he is God. Some people have concluded that the Old Testament now that Jesus has come, is, uh, it's been a decisive break. But Jesus says, hey, not so. 
Not so. Look at verse 17. Do not assume or think or even consider that I, Jesus, has come to destroy the law. That was not Jesus' purpose. That was not his goal while he came to earth. Instead, the scriptures find their fulfillment. They find their intended purpose. The, the reason that God gave them to the Israelites was to point toward Christ. He is to which they point. He is the one that they predict, the one that they anticipate in all of the prophets and even in the law. James Boyce puts it this way. The Bible is about Jesus, and he is the fulfillment in all ways. He fulfills the moral laws by his obedience. He fulfills the prophecies by the specifics of his life. And he fulfills the sacrificial, sacrificial system by his once and for all atonement. He fulfills all of it. There's nothing in the Old Testament that doesn't point back to Christ. He fulfills everything, the moral, the, the prophetic, and the sacrificial system. To set scripture aside was never Jesus' agenda. He never at one point decided, hey, I don't think we, this is really important. Let me just give you a new scripture. There's a reason we read both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Our reading this morning was from the Old Testament. It is still applicable today. Jesus did not come to abolish that, but instead to affirm it, instead to validate it. Don Carson, uh, he has it right when he says, Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament in many ways because they point to Christ. He has certainly not come to abolish them. Rather, he has come to fulfill them in a rich diversity of ways. Jesus did not conceive of his life and ministry in terms of opposition to the Old Testament, but in terms of bringing to fruition that towards which it points. Thus, the law and the prophets, far from being abolished, find their valid continuity in terms of their outworking in Jesus. I hope we're seeing that literally all scripture points to Christ. There's nothing in scripture that we're going to look at in the Old Testament or anything that you're going to be like, I don't really know if that points to Christ. I think that might point to something else. All scripture points to Christ in one way or another. Matthew shows that Jesus affirmed the scriptures and its continuing validity that he came to fulfill. The word abolish here, if you, if you were to research that word abolish, it would indicate a strong doing away with. Totally strong doing away with. And the, the law in which he's talking about um, is not just the first five books, what well, is, but then it says, uh, and the prophets. So I did not come to abolish both the law and the prophets. To fulfill is understood in three different ways. And I think this is, I, when I read this, I thought this was really good. To fulfill has been understood in three ways. Number one, it may mean that he, Jesus, would do things that were laid down in Scripture. Number two, it may mean that he would bring out the full meaning of Scripture. And number three, it may mean that in his life and teaching, he would bring Scripture to its completion. And I think each of those has aspects of truth. And I think all three of them are true in one way or another. But however we interpret it, however we're interpreting this, we cannot forget that the law can be summed up in two commandments. Two commandments. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. He said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. All the law boils down 
to two commands. All 613 commandments, 613 laws, boil down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We must bear in mind that fulfill does not mean the same as keep. Fulfill and keep are not the same thing. Jesus is speaking more about obedience, about radical obedience, than he is talking about regulations. Nor should we forget that in the way Jesus fulfilled cannot be fully anticipated until his death, burial, and resurrection. So not everything in the prophets, when Jesus is, uh, you know, in Isaiah, when they say, when they talk about him being killed on a cross, that wasn't fulfilled in Matthew chapter 5, because Jesus hasn't been killed on a cross. He hasn't been crucified. He hasn't been buried or resurrected. So it can't be fully appreciated until his death and resurrection. And also the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was prophesied, right? The Spirit coming, living, dwelling in believers, take out the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. That can't be fulfilled in Matthew chapter 5. That's later in early Acts. So fulfill, Jesus did not come to only fulfill the law and its moral duties, but he also came for the sacrificial system and he fulfilled all of the prophecies. The Mosaic law points towards the teachings of Christ and the prophetic teachings are his actions, the actions of Christ, what Christ will do when he comes. A quote from John Calvin says this, The scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. Whoever turns aside from this object, even though he wears himself out all his life in learning, he will never reach the knowledge of truth. That is wild. All scriptures, they should be read in finding their aim in Christ. If you're looking at the scriptures and you're not searching for the riches of who Christ is, you can be learning your whole life and it says you will never reach the knowledge of truth. You cannot read the scriptures. You cannot read these and not see Jesus marked everywhere. He left his imprint on every page. Number two, all of scripture is perfect in every detail. He says, for truly I tell you, unless, unless, earth, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Verse 18. Jesus introduced verse 18 with a personal authority that transcended all other authorities. He says, truly I tell you, or some versions say, truly, truly I tell you. He's basically saying, Listen, something big's about to come, because I'm not kidding here. This is, this is perfect. Like, what I'm about to say is a big deal. Truly, truly, I'm telling you this. He's asserting an authority there. In Luke, he says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one title of the law to fail. Jesus here is affirming the reliability and truthfulness of Scripture when he says this verse. And he says in the strongest possible language. He is not saying that the Old Testament contains some truth and there's some good things in it and we should definitely take some of it because some of it is totally useful for you. Instead he's saying all of this, every single aspect of this, including the littlest tiny stroke, is perfect in every detail. And because it's perfect, all of it will come to fruition. Every single thing that I say will come to fruition. 
Jesus consistently treated the historical narratives of the Old Testament as straightforward records of fact. He referred to Abel and Noah and Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, Isaac and Jacob, the man of the wilderness serpent, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, and Moses, among others. Nowhere is there the slightest hint that he questioned the historicity or accuracy of those accounts. Jesus talks about the Old Testament not as an abstract thing. He does not say some of this is true and some of it isn't. Instead, he refers to every single thing that he refers to is saying, hey, this is real. This is authentic. When Moses spoke, this, I mean, you're, now he, he was speaking of me. Everything happened was a historical fact in Jesus' mind and in his language. He is not in any regards contemplating or debating whether or not they should have trusted the Old Testament. They should have trusted the Old Testament. Jesus affirms and validates the Old Testament. For Jesus, Scripture was the final court of appeal in his disputes with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In his battle against Satan in the wilderness, Jesus cited scriptural statements as arguments against which no farther argument was possible. My question is, are you that way? When you look at Scripture, are you using Scripture as the final authoritative piece in your life? Or are you trying to piece things together and puzzle things together to fit your worldview? Because Scripture, Jesus is saying all Scripture is perfect. In all of its detail, it is perfect. Do you treat it like it's perfect? Because if it's perfect, we would treat it differently. We would handle it with such care. And like I said, Jesus, when he was tempted, he used, used scriptural references. He used scriptural arguments to defeat Satan. When you are tempted and tried, what are you looking to? Are you looking at scripture to, to guide you and to help you and to nurture you and to encourage you? Or are you looking elsewhere, looking at the things that the world is giving and delivering you? Which one are you taking to be trustworthy and true? Because the world is telling us, hey, you need to lighten up some of your stances. You're too hard on some things. You're too biblical. That doesn't, why would you do that? That's old time stuff. You need to lighten up on some of your stances. One thing a lot of Christians and uh, overseas are dealing with are people who are saying there's no way Jesus could be literally the only one you have to lighten that up there has to be other avenues to get to heaven there has to be people are saying things like that my question is are you going to lighten up your stances or are you going to be like Jesus in the desert are you going to hone in and, and realize that hey scripture is my final authority I don't care what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what my neighbor says or what the news says or what presidents say or whatever. Scripture is my final authority. And I will not go against Scripture. In this verse, it says, until heaven and earth pass away. He's talking about until the end of created things. In all its due course, everything will pass away. But Isaiah 40 says this, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Think about that. Before the world was created, there was God. 
the Trinity in perfect union, and he created the world. When there was nothing, he created the world by speaking into it. Before anything was created, the word of the Lord was there. He created it, and then after creation, long time from now, who knows, the Lord will end the earth. Before everything is gone, when everything is gone, there's one thing that will still remain. The word of the Lord will remain. As crazy as that is, as crazy as it's so hard to even really imagine just that before anything was here, God was here, and then he created, and then a long time after everything's gone, the word of the Lord will still remain. It's mind-boggling. It says, not the smallest stroke will pass. Here is usually understood as to refer to the yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the littlest stroke was probably a tiny projection on some letters. Think about the difference of like an R and a P. Just that little, little curve, or maybe even an F and a P, right? Just that little, just the smallest little stroke will not pass away. It will not pass away until all is accomplished, until all is fulfilled. It forms a very emphatic assertion that the permanence and the valid, val, validity of Scripture. None of it will pass away until Christ has accomplished all. Number three, all of Scripture must be trusted and obeyed. I'm going to read you an article from, uh, it's called The Babylon Bee. Okay? This is a satire website, okay? which means it is not authentic. This is not True life, this is not real life, okay? But there is aspects of truth in satire, okay? If you've ever looked at this website, there's funny things out there. I think it's absolutely hilarious. It's not true. It's not authentic. So if you ever see anything on social media, don't count it as like, this is perfect. Like, yes, this is inerrant. No, it's a joke. But in the joke, there are realities of truth, okay? So the point is all scripture must be trusted and obeyed. Okay, and here is this article. After a caref- here's the title. After a careful five-minute-long study, woman concludes Bible supports her position. Okay, here's what it says. In Seattle, Washington. After a full five minutes of careful study on a con- controversial topic, local believer Andrea Williams confirmed Wednesday that she had to come to the conclusion that the Bible was 100% in agreement with what she wanted to be true in the first place. The Christian woman performed extensive research into the topic, including Googling phrases like, how do I explain away verses that disagree with me in the Bible? How to esegete before cracking open her copy of the scriptures and spending minutes poring over the text. It's really amazing when I just make such effort to spend a few deliberate hasty minutes in the word. I can get to the text to fall in line with my preconceived notions about issues that really matter to me. She was heard saying as, as she consciously chased chose to ignore the clear meaning of the inspired words in favor of her unlikely interpretation only minutes later uh, to impose her worldview on the text. She said, I love how when we come to the word of God and allow it to shape our minds, it always does us a favor by conforming to our own understandings first. Okay, obviously this is satire. It is a joke. But the point, there is still levels of truth in that. There's levels of truth that we, at times, will look up something regarding an area that we want the Bible to conform to our worldview. 
Like, we want to be comfortable. Let's call it what it is. We want to be comfortable. We want all of our beliefs to just be easily um, taken back to Scripture so we can affirm it, so we can be like, oh, so we can have peace about it, right? We want peace about that. I really feel like this is the way things should be, so let me try to manipulate Scripture in a way that it'll all of a sudden conform to my worldview. It happens all too often. Uh, if you look, if you have a lot of Christian friends on social media who are all over the country, you will see all sorts of things on there where Christians are trying to assert their worldview into Scripture and pour the things into what they think. That is clearly unbiblical. So all Scripture must be trusted and obeyed in its context, not in the context in which you decide it should be in. It says, verse 19 says, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This brings you back to Matthew chapter 28 in the great commission of discipleship. Whoever teaches, whoever does these, whoever does these commands and teaches these commands to others, discipleship, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But if you don't, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus, if what Jesus says is true, then he says all scripture points to him, all of it is perfect in every detail, and therefore if it's perfect in every detail, then it must be trusted and it must be obeyed. A complete a completely true and trustworthy Bible should be treated with the utmost care. It should impact how we obey it and how we teach it. Jesus told us in verse 18 that the authority of Scripture will not pass away until God fulfilled every promise and prediction in its pages. Now in verse 19, he's telling us, hey, nothing. Uh, yeah, in verse 19, he says that the authority applies and is relevant to the smallest detail, the least of these commandments. To break even a little commandment is a big deal to Jesus and they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read some quotes from the book of John. It'll be John and 1 John regarding just when he keeps talking about commandments, 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 and the importance of obeying the commandments. John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love, 1 John 2. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments, 1 John 3. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in Him and God in Him. And by this, we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He gives us, 1 John 5. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. He talks a lot about commandments, a lot about love. If you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you want to serve me, you will keep my commandments. By this, we know that you are a follower of Christ because you keep my commandments. Since scripture is of continuing validity and Jesus is to fulfill it, breaking the least of these commandments is not unimportant. Breaking even the littlest commandment was a big deal. Jesus is saying even to nullify one is serious. So to impose your worldview, to consider yourself correct, and to totally negate what Scripture says would be a big deal to Jesus, and we will have to answer for that. I mean, what Scriptures are hard for you to 
to obey? What scriptures are hard for you to, to swallow of, man, I really got to eat my pride here because I really don't want to believe this. I've had many conversations with students on college campuses who are like, if Jesus would just allow X, Y, or Z, or if this socially cultural thing of X, Y, and Z were just able to be true, I think I could follow him. Pretty sure I could follow him if, I, if, this, if he wouldn't condemn this. If he thought this was acceptable, I would be able to follow him easier. Right? But Scripture is never going to fit into our worldview because we are sinners. And we are in need of a Savior. And if Christ is our Savior, then we have to trust and obey what he says. But everything has to be taken in context. For example, in verses 21 and 48, later in Matthew chapter 5, which we will hit in the next several weeks, shows that this does not mean the literal interpretation of every injunction. Not every single thing in this has to be taken literally. For example, um, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Does anybody's eye cause you to sin? Mine has. I still have two. Am I being disobedient? Is that the point, literally, that you need to pluck your eyes out? Because we'd all have no eyes and no fingers, no arms and no legs. Right? If that was the case. So everything has to be taken in its context. I heard this joke in, it, it, I, I think it's funny, but it's a joke in um, at seminary in a hermeneutics class. He was saying, should all scripture be trusted and obeyed? And they said, yeah, but nobody mentioned about context. So just pick whatever you want. So he did this. Show his Bible. We're going to obey whatever scripture says. Anything it says, no matter what the context, we're obeying it. He goes. So, and Judas went out and hung himself. Okay, that's not good. Let's shut that. Okay, let's do it again. Let's take that first part and let's open it again. Go and do likewise. Okay, this is not good either. Let's shut this again. Let's open it up. We're going Old Testament this time. What you do, do quickly. Oh, wow, this is, this is really bad. Okay. The point is, we cannot conform the Bible to be whatever we want. We have to take it in its context. There must be careful interpretation, and no commandment can be taken lightly. Such a person who takes these lightly will be called least in the kingdom of God. But to fulfill them, to teach them well, and to love God's commandments, you will be called great in the kingdom of God of heaven. One is living the life of defiling scripture by not obeying it and holding God's word in high esteem. The other is obeying God's commandments and he's making disciples. That's the great commission. Go and make disciples. Are you discipling someone well? Are you even discipling someone at all? And if you are, are you doing it well? Are you teaching him to obey all that God has commanded him? Matthew chapter 28. When was the last time that you led someone to the Lord? When was the last time that you shared the gospel? When was the last time you invited someone to church with you? Number four, look to Christ for your righteousness. It says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom 
of heaven. The ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ, not law-keeping, for our righteousness. The purpose of the law, the ultimate goal of the law, is that we would look to Christ for our righteousness and not our law-keeping. Jesus calls for his followers to have the righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's obviously referring to a different kind of righteousness than the Pharisees or scribes are thinking of, right? They're thinking of law-keeping, right? That's what they did. That's what they were good at. They stressed law-keeping, and they were thought of to be very righteous, Verse in Matthew 23, it says, Along the lines of law-keeping, who could possibly exceed the righteousness of those who tithe, mint, dill, and cumin? They were thought of as being very righteous. But Jesus was talking about a totally different kind of righteousness. Totally different kind of righteousness that is central to the gospel in which we know. A righteousness that, a righteousness that in chapter 5, they wouldn't really understand until after his death, burial, and resurrection. A righteousness that comes only by Christ dying on a cross for your sins to atone for your sins so that when you accept Christ and then when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you become a son and daughter of the king. And that instead of Christ looking at you, he now robes you with Christ's righteousness. So when he sees you, he sees perfection. He sees his son and his daughters. But that's not the way it was to the Pharisees. A lot later in this sermon on the mount, here he's talking about the letter of the law and how the Pharisees put tremendous emphasis on the letter of the law, but Jesus was looking for something totally different. He's not looking at the letter of the law and its regulations, but instead he's looking for radical obedience. That's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for radical obedience. The Pharisees were almost universally praised in Jesus' day and were regarded as outstanding examples of those who lived by the law of God. But Jesus warns his hearers that the Pharisaic way is the wrong way. If they are to enter the kingdom of God, then they must come to by a different way. Jesus came to fulfill the law and to fulfill the prophets through perfect love and obedience. And Jesus fulfilled that by living a perfect sinless life. So he fulfilled the law by his perfect obedience, by his perfect trust. I love this song. It's called Grace Alone. It's talking about how we work. It says we work our fingers down to the bone, but nothing you can do can ever atone. We have a tendency to want to work our way to salvation so that God can see us in, in a different light that, man, I'm doing so much more than this person. I'm doing so much more than this person. I have to do more to earn God's favor. But if we really look at it in a biblical light, we work our fingers down to the bone, but nothing you can do can ever atone for your sins except Christ. Nothing you can do can work your way to heaven. It is only by Christ's death that can atone for your 
sins. We don't have to work for our salvation in order to please God. Instead, if you're a believer, God the Father is looking at you the way he looks at his son. And that should bring great relief. It should bring great uh, trust in God. It should bring confidence to us to have confidence in God that he has given us his righteousness. And you're not going to follow, you can't follow the letter of the law perfectly anyways. We all can't. So we have to look for someone greater, someone greater than ourselves for our righteousness. And that's what Christ did on the cross. He bore your sin, he bore your shame so that you could be called righteous in his sight. Greatest of these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not a believer, if you're not a believer, I want to encourage you to put your trust and faith in Christ, that you do not have to work any longer. You do not have to toil so much and try to work your way into heaven because you will never make it. The scales, if you had a scale of good works and bad works, they would never even be close to even. No matter how much good you think you're doing, you will never be close to even. But instead, that is why Christ came, so that you don't have to live by the letter of the law in order to get to heaven. That is not your salvation. The law is not salvation, but it points to Christ, which can bring you salvation if you put your faith in your trust in him. And if you are a believer, I would encourage you, search the scriptures and continue to see Christ in all of your scriptures. When you look at your Bible, look at it through a Christ-centered perspective, and then trust, if you trust in Christ, you should trust these scriptures. Anything that the scripture says in context should be believed, it should be acted upon, and then also live with the confidence, live with the confidence that you have Christ's righteousness. Not everyone has that. Not everyone in this world has Christ's righteousness is pouring over them. Lean on the gospel and trust the gospel that he has saved you from your sins. He did something you could not do, but you have it anyways, and that's grace. We're going to go into a time of prayer and then worship. I would just encourage you to move and respond in whatever way is necessary, whether that's praying with uh, someone next to you or coming to the front to pray. However you need to respond, respond as um, as need be. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You are so gracious to us. God, we are so undeserving of your favor, but you have gave us unmerited favor. You have saved us from our sins. You have healed us when we felt we could never be healed. God, we pray for anyone in this room who does not know you or has not put their trust and faith in you. We pray, Lord, that in this moment today that they would put their trust and faith in you. We pray for the believers in this room, Lord, that you would encourage them, you would equip them to do good works, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves, and that they would not look to themselves and be like, look how good I'm doing, but instead look at what Christ has done in me and through me.
God, I pray that we would live a life of confidence, knowing that you have saved us and that would help us live in a different light in our community, in our homes, and in our church. In Christ's name, amen.